Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk and thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. It is the last week of September, so I wanted to close off National Suicide Prevention Month with an episode talking about interventions for suicidality. So when we think about interventions for suicidality, we have primary interventions, secondary interventions, and tertiary interventions. So primary interventions focus on the prevention of suicide in the community before it occurs. This level of prevention aims to decrease risk factors and increase protective factors in order to prevent suicide from occurring in the first place. Examples of this may include increased connectedness, increased coping skills, housing and financial stability, and community supports. Then secondary prevention efforts focus on the early detection and prompt intervention of suicidality. At this level of prevention, we want to detect those who are at greater risk for experiencing suicidal thoughts or individuals who may have already experienced suicidal thoughts but have not yet acted on them. Secondary prevention is aimed at identifying at-risk individuals early in order to intervene promptly. So essentially, this means screening. Screening patients for depression or suicide risk, for example, can lead to early intervention and prevention of a more dire outcome. At this level, it's also important to know the risk factors and warning signs for suicide, not just for healthcare professionals, but those in the general population. Suicide hotlines and crisis centers may also be categorized as secondary prevention. One could also argue that any intervention that decreases the likelihood of a suicide attempt or completed suicide in high-risk individuals such as psychotherapy or psychopharmacology could be secondary intervention. However, as you will see in a moment, those can also fall under tertiary prevention based on context. So tertiary prevention focuses on the period after a suicidal crisis has already occurred. The focus at this point is to help promote the individual's recovery if they survive the attempt, reduce the likelihood of suicide contagion, which is the increase in suicides we see after a singular suicide, and provide support for the survivors of the individual who died by suicide. So examples of tertiary prevention include outpatient support for a patient following a hospitalization related to a suicide attempt. Um, This may include pharmacological therapy as well as psychotherapy. Tertiary prevention can also include support groups for family and friends of an individual who has died by suicide and following media reporting guidelines when the news covers a suicide to reduce suicide contagion. So 
Although I just explained primary, secondary, and tertiary intervention and prevention, trying to cover every single type of prevention strategy in one episode would, one, make for an extremely long episode, and two, there are likely interventions that I am unaware of. Thus, for this episode, I really want to focus on some of the evidence-based interventions for suicide so that those experiencing suicidal thoughts and behaviors healthcare professionals, mental health professionals, and just lay people that may have a loved one who is suicidal are aware of what available interventions for suicidality are out there. So the first thing I am going to talk about in depth is screening and risk assessment. So several approaches to suicide risk assessment have been developed. And as I said a few moments ago, so this would be that secondary prevention where we are screening individuals primarily who are at risk, but as you'll see here in a few minutes, uh, there are some recommendations and guidelines about screening universally, um, screening those that are at risk for suicide. So the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, also known as the CSSRS, is a validated and reliable instrument that measures current and past suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, preparatory behaviors, as well as non-suicidal self-injury, also known as NSSI. The severity and intensity of suicidal ideation, lifetime suicide attempt, and NSSI, measured by the CSSRS, were found to predict future suicide attempts among adolescents and young adult psychiatric emergency department patients. There is also an abundance of literature on the validity of the CSSRS as a screening method for longitudinality predicting future suicide behaviors. Other screening approaches consider risk factors besides suicidal ideation and behaviors such as demographics, psychiatric and family history, diagnoses, trauma, as well as protective factors, because those are really important to know about when we are screening for suicide risk. The Suicide Assessment 5-Step Evaluation and Triage, also known as the SAFE-T, letter T, um, instrument is used to identify risk and protective factors, inquire about suicidal thoughts, plans, behavior, and intent, determine risk level, as well as choose an appropriate intervention. There is also the Ask Suicide Screening Questions, which is the ASQ, and this tool is a set of four brief suicide screening questions that can be used in a variety of medical settings, and there are also youth and adult versions of the ASQ. It also provides the person administering it next steps based on the individual who is answering's responses. Further, the American Academy of Pediatrics best practice recommendations recommend that all youth aged 12 and above are screened for suicide. So that's what I was referring to when I uh, mentioned a few minutes ago that even though secondary prevention and intervention strategies when it comes to screening typically focus on screening and identifying those that are high risk, the American Academy of Pediatrics says for youth over 12, we need to be screening everybody. For individuals ages 8 to 11, pediatricians are to screen when clinically indicated. So maybe those that 
have a history of depression, have expressed suicidal behavior before, have a number of risk factors, etc. And for those under eight, screening is not indicated, but pediatricians are to assess for suicidal thoughts or behaviors if warning signs are present. So universal screening is a more comprehensive strategy than targeted screening, wherein a setting chooses to screen only behavioral health patients for suicide risk and is an important way to help all patients feel less alone with suicidal thoughts. So the AAP recommending screening all individuals 12 plus is universal screening because then we're not missing anybody that may not be showing explicit risk behaviors or warning signs. And to the second point I just made, it helps all patients feel less alone because there is still a huge stigma and discomfort with talking about suicide. And if we don't ask people, especially as healthcare professionals, people most often are not going to voluntarily volunteer that information because it is hard to talk about. Research also shows that most people who die by suicide have visited a healthcare professional in the weeks or months before their death. So asking about suicide risk can be a way to recognize someone at risk and get them help. So similarly to the American Academy of Pediatrics, the United States U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommends screening for depression in the adult population, including pregnant and postpartum individuals, as well as older adults age 65 plus. However, even though they recommend this, the USPST also concludes that the evidence on screening for suicide risk in primary care is insufficient and that the balance of benefits and harms cannot be determined specifically for adolescents and adults who do not have an identified psychiatric history. So I know I don't work with adults, but I know I can speak to the outpatient clinic I work in and generally just the hospital system I work in. Um, we do screen for depression in all of our patients. Granted, I see adolescents, so that's going with the AAP recommendations. And it's a two-question screener. However, if they endorse um depression symptoms on that screener, there is a longer version. So we start with depression and then that longer version can also assess for more specific suicide risk. Um, Additionally, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends screening patients at least once during the perinatal period for depression. I also know in the United States, it's pretty standard process that after a individual has a baby and they're going to their child's well child check, the pediatrician will also screen for postpartum depression. I know I was screened for postpartum depression after I had my daughter. And when I worked in pediatric primary care, we would screen um, new parents for postpartum depression as well. Obviously, those uh, like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, AAP, etc. is very U.S. focus. I don't know what the recommendations are in other countries, but if you are listening from outside the U.S. and know what the universal screening or even targeted screening recommendations are for suicide and or depression, I would love to hear from you. So the next thing I'm going to talk about is means restriction. So we just talked about uh, screening and assessment. The next evidence-based intervention that has been researched a lot is means restriction. 
So suicides decreased following legislation pertaining to the restriction of firearms, pesticides, barbiturate prescriptions, detoxification of domestic gas, modification of anesthetic packaging, mandated use of catalytic catalytic converters in automobiles, erection of barriers at common jumping locations, lower toxicity of antidepressants, and restricted access to charcoal. And I know I just named a lot, but I wanted to name all of those things to show that there are one, so many ways that individuals can die by suicide, and two, regardless of the means of the way the individual attempts suicide, restricting access to those means can help reduce suicide rates. I also wanted to include those all because recently I made a video on guns and suicide, and although I got a lot of positive feedback, I also got some very... um, politically driven feedback and criticism for not including other methods and means, which was not the point of the video. So just know when we're talking about means restriction, we're not just talking about guns. Yes, there's a ton of research on guns. We're talking about restricting access to any means in which an individual could attempt or die by suicide. So there is a course called Counseling on Access to lethal means also known as calm which i will link in the show notes because it is free and it teaches individuals how to reduce access to the methods people use to kill themselves it covers um who needs lethal means counseling and how to work with people at risk for suicide as well as their families to reduce access it is primarily targeted towards mental health professionals and has been shown to increase gatekeeper confidence in ability to care for suicidal patients and foster positive changes in clinician practice. I would argue even if it is targeted toward clinicians, the information in there could be really helpful for parents, guardians, loved ones, uh, spouses, etc. of someone who may be struggling with suicidality. So there are also things we can do on an individual level or for ourselves or for a loved one to restrict access to means. It's not all for clinicians. So when thinking about medications, it's important not to keep a lethal dose of medication on hand. And I know that can be hard, especially individuals who live with chronic illness, or there's a number of people in the household that have chronic illnesses, but if possible, not keeping a lethal dose of medication on hand, keeping medications locked up because if, uh, this is something we recommend for our adolescents a lot. If medications are locked up and you have to have a key or a code, it, um, reduces access and increases a barrier and then properly dispose of medications you no longer need. I know I am at fault for this. I couldn't tell you how many times in my life I've had expired medication in my cabinet, but there are places that you can properly dispose of medication. Local hospitals usually have a drop-off bin. I know some pharmacies do as well. So once the medication is expired, or maybe you're no longer taking a medication, make sure you dispose of medications. And that's good practice, even if you're not concerned about yourself or someone in your house who is suicidal, just to reduce risk and accidents because accidents can happen. You take the wrong medication, wrong dose, etc. 
So I am going to talk about firearms um, because firearms and suicide is a big thing we need to talk about. So regardless of your stance on owning firearms, um, this is not a political debate or anything like that. It is just sharing what the research indicates and suggests. I'm not going to go into all the um, statistics and things like that. You can go find the video I recently made. But yes, know that this is not a political thing. We do have to talk about it though, because I think it's something like six out of 10 deaths by firearms are due to suicide. So I would not be doing my due diligence if I didn't talk about it. So when we're talking about means restriction with firearms, it is important to keep firearms locked in a safe and ammunition stored in a separate location. And honestly, this should be practice once again, regardless if you have someone who is suicidal or not unrelated to suicide as somebody that works in a children's hospital. I could not tell you how many children I have seen in the hospital and treated for accidental gunshot wounds due to a child or an adolescent having access to a unlocked and um, I'll, this is showing my ignorance here of uh, gun knowledge, but unlocked gun. So it was not in a safe and it had ammunition in it. I don't know the proper term for that. And there was an accident. So Keep firearms locked in a safe, ammunition and sword separate location. If you are struggling, or if there's someone in your home who is struggling, ask a friend or family member to store your firearms for you temporarily until you are safe enough to have it again. Similarly, if you are in a home and you're concerned about a loved one, ask a friend or family member to temporarily store the firearm for you. Check out a little sh local shooting club or local police precinct to see if they have temporary storage options if you do not feel comfortable giving your firearm to a friend or family member. I also went to a training on suicide recently hosted by Elise Mandic. You might know her as Big Empathy Therapy on Instagram. And she talked about the gun violence restraining order in California, which Stop someone from having, owning, or buying any firearms, firearm parts, ammunition, or magazines. So although the intent with this gun violence restraining order was to reduce homicide, it's actually been more frequently used to prevent suicides. So you could check out to see if there is something similar in your state. They are sometimes also called red flag gun laws, and this just helps people not have access to purchasing uh, firearms because the research does indicate that suicides by firearms most often occur within the first year of purchasing said firearm. When I have done safety planning with individuals, um, particularly when I worked inpatient, in addition to guns and medication, I also encourage locking up pesticides, household chemicals, or anything that could be used as a ligature, etc. So really reducing access to anything in which an individual could potentially harm themselves. Knives is another big one that just came to mind. So moving on from means restriction, I'm going to now talk about psychotherapy. 
So for individuals at risk for suicide ideation or already experiencing suicidal ideation and behavior, if accessible, psychotherapy can be a beneficial intervention to reduce frequency and intensity of suicidal thoughts and behaviors, as well as lessen risk for a suicide attempt. So randomized controlled trials indicate the most effective psychosocial treatment interventions are cognitive behavioral therapies and others with interpersonal orientations that target participants or precipitants, sorry, uh, to self-harm. So brief CBT, web-based CBT, CBT and DBT informed family treatment and DBT alone are effective in reducing suicidal ideation preventing the onset of suicidal ideation, preventing post-treatment suicide attempts and reattempts, decreasing hospitalizations and ED visits, and lowering medical risk of self-injurious acts. So I'm going to talk about a few specific interventions that have an evidence base for reducing suicidality. So cognitive behavioral therapy for suicide prevention, also known as CBTSP, utilizes a risk reduction relapse prevention approach, and theoretically grounded in principles of CBT, DBT, and targeted therapies for suicidal depressed youth. It includes a chain analysis of the suicidal event, safety plan development, skill building, psychoeducation, family intervention, and relapse prevention. Dialectical behavioral therapy, or DBT, is an adaptation of CBT where the main goals are to teach people how to live in the moment, develop healthy ways to cope with stress, regulate their emotions, and improve their relationships with others. Strategies and techniques include mindfulness, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, and emotion regulation. DBT skills training is also efficacious in reducing non-suicidal self-injury which I'm now realizing as I've brought up NSSI, I've never done an episode on that. So maybe I have to, because a lot of people think of self-injury as a form of suicidality, but there is a lot of evidence to show that many people that engage in self-harm aren't actually doing it for suicidal purposes. Then we have attachment-based therapy. So ABFT. So this is a treatment for youth specific um, between the ages of 12 and 24 based on an interpersonal theory of depression, which proposes that the quality of a family relationship may precipitate, exacerbate, or prevent depression and suicidal ideation. So ABFT aims to strengthen or repair parent-adolescent attachment bonds and improve family communication. Then we have mentalization-based treatment, or MBT. So mentalizing is the ability to focus on and differentiate between your own emotional state of mind and that of others and understand how one's mental state influences behavior. So MBT focuses on increasing the capacity to mentalize through elements and techniques from psychodynamic, cognitive behavioral, systemic, and socio-ecological therapies. So in addition to traditional psychotherapy, which I just listed a few examples, there are suicide-specific interventions that show beneficial effects for reducing suicide risk. And I really wanted to highlight these because unfortunately, despite updated guidelines for suicide prevention training in the fields of psychology, social work, and psychiatry in the U.S., formal training on suicide risk assessment and management still remains limited. 
there is a gap in clinical like training as usual that really needs to be filled by evidence-based clinical approaches to identify, monitor, and treat fluctuations in suicide risk. So what I am about to talk about, these suicide-specific interventions, would often be used in addition to those traditional psychotherapy models such as CBT, DBT, mentalization-based therapy, family therapy, or any other therapy that maybe doesn't target suicidal behavior as specific as the ones I have already listed, but then these can be used in addition to that. And just as a clinician who does have a lot of knowledge and training in suicide, I totally also see the gap in training. I didn't get a ton of training in graduate school on assessment of suicide risk. Like the hands-on training really came from working psychiatric inpatient. And my knowledge really came from the fact that I studied suicide in graduate school for years. So I definitely see the gap. And I have also heard a number of stories and spoken to people who are in the field but still have a discomfort with assessing and managing suicidal um, clients. So hopefully if you are a mental health professional that feels a little uneasy and you're listening to this, the next little bit that I'm going to talk about will be helpful for you and you can look more into it in addition to other trainings. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality, also known as CAMS. This is probably the most popular or most well-known suicide-specific intervention. So CAMS is a treatment framework in which the client and clinician work together to keep the client stable, ideally in the outpatient setting, and identify the drivers that compel the client to take their life. The therapist and client work on treating those drivers to reduce stress, hopelessness, and suicidal ideation while increasing hope. So in comparison with just treatment as usual, so for those that may not be in the field, treatment as usual is just whatever treatment they were previously getting. CAMS was found to decrease suicidal ideation and related cognitions in inpatients receiving individual therapy from CAMS-trained clinicians. The next one I'm going to talk about is AIM-SP. So the AIM-SP model offers 10 steps for applying best suicide prevention practices to everyday clinical care and was developed to fill the gap in clinical training of clinicians. The AIM-SP model is to be integrated into treatment as usual when managing suicidal behavior outpatient. So the A in AIM is for assess. So first, the clinician will inquire explicitly about suicidal ideation and behavior past and present, then identify risk factors in addition to suicidal ideation and behavior, implement and maintain continued focus on safety. I is for intervene. So during this intervene stage, um, the clinician will introduce and develop a collaborative safety plan intervention for managing suicidality, including lethal means restriction, initiate coping strategies and supports, and integrate suicide-specific treatment targets in treatment planning process. And then M is for monitor. So in this stage, the clinician helps the client increase flexibility and contact availability 
initiate increased monitoring during periods of highest risk, involve family and other social supports, and involve clinician peer support and consultation. The next model I'm going to talk about is the Safe Alternatives for Teens and Youth, also known as SAFETY. So SAFETY was developed as a treatment for adolescents with recent suicide attempts. The SAFETY intervention is an individually tailored treatment focused on preventing repeat suicidal behavior. SAFETY is a time-limited intervention approach based on a socio-ecological cognitive behavioral model for behavior change. And then it is also informed by DBT, which aims to reduce suicide attempt risk by targeting risk and protective factors in the environment. As well as assessing individual and person by environment interactions. So the next thing I'm going to talk about is safety plan intervention. So the safety plan intervention, also known as SPI, is a best practice brief intervention that incorporates evidence-based suicide risk reduction strategies, such as lethal means restriction, beef problem solving and coping skills, increasing social support, and identifying emergency contacts to use during a suicidal crisis. In conducting an SPI, Clinician and client collaborate to develop a six-step plan for staying safe. These include identifying warning signs, individual coping skills, people and places for distraction, people to contact for help, professionals to contact for help, and steps for means safety. And the last suicide-specific intervention I'm going to talk about is crisis response planning. So crisis response planning is a brief intervention in which individuals use a small card to write out steps for self-identifying personal warning signs, coping strategies, enlisting social support, and accessing professional services. Research has shown that crisis response planning is effective, more effective than contracts for safety in preventing suicide attempts, reducing suicidal ideation, as well as reducing hospitalization. So this kind of brings me to a side note. I hate safety contracts for suicide. Um, research does not support their effectiveness, and there are a lot of weaknesses with them. So for those who may not be familiar, a safety contract for suicide, a no suicide contract, also called a no harm agreement, life maintenance contract, or safety agreement, any one of those terms, if you've heard them, is an agreement between a client and therapist that states that the client will refrain from any type of self-harm until the next session or any other identified time period. When I have talked about these uh, no suicide contracts online, I have had a few people say they do find them helpful, which is great. I'm glad they are helpful. But generally speaking, at least among the professionals and clients I have talked to and what the research says, most of us do not care for them because they're not effective. And they also add this level of like shame or guilt if for example, the client does engage in self-harm, and then it also reduces uh, that trust and relationship between client and therapist, because if I just signed a no self-harm or suicide contract as a client, and I haven't seen my therapist in two weeks, and on day 10, I self-harm, 
the likelihood of me telling my therapist that is very low because I am going to be fearful that they are upset with me. I am going to feel like I disappointed them. Um, and then that means I'm not going to talk about those things in the future. So for me personally, I do not do no suicide, no self-harm contracts, but I do make safety plans with my client, safety plan, not safety contract, which includes things like identifying their warning signs that they are in, at increased risk for suicide, identifying coping strategies, identifying people who can help them, professionals they can call, reasons for living, limiting their access to means, etc. Very similar to like the safety planning intervention that I just spoke about a few minutes ago. So the last thing I'm going to talk about in this episode is really about care, monitoring, and follow-up after an attempt. So after someone makes a suicide attempt or presents to the emergency department for suicidal ideation, it is imperative that this individual receives monitoring and follow-up once discharge. I have unfortunately seen too many times where people are discharged from the ED or even an acute psychiatric facility and do not have proper follow-up. So I want to highlight some of the research on monitoring and follow-up after presenting to the emergency department, or more broadly speaking, being identified as at risk for suicidal behavior. So the practice of contacting people and providing support after discharge from the ED or after being identified as at risk for suicide reduces suicidal behavior and deaths. The brief intervention and contact, also known as BIC or BIC, which is a one-hour information session and follow-up contact after ED discharge, was associated with a reduced number of suicide deaths in the 18 months following discharge in a five-country randomized control trial. So one-hour follow-up, reduced deaths um, within the 18 months post-ED visit across five countries, which I think is pretty impressive. Multidisciplinary chain of care networks for suicide attempters following hospitalization in Norway have resulted in lower rates of repeated attempts. Active contact and follow-up was found effective in preventing repeat attempts over a year following admissions to the ED for suicide attempts. And in-person telephone follow-ups reduced suicidal thoughts and increased hope in suicide attempters. In a review of 11 empirical studies of follow-up interventions, so this included phone, letters sent via mail, postcards, in-person follow-ups, emails, texts, five demonstrated significant decreases in suicidal behavior, so five of the 11 empirical studies. A combined safety planning structured follow-up intervention, also known as SPI-SFU, in the VA was viewed as acceptable and helpful in preventing su future suicidal behavior and promoting treatment engagement. Social support strategies can also be employed to follow up with and monitor individuals following suicidal behaviors. So for example, in India, a peer support intervention led to a 36% decrease in suicide attempts. The Attempted Suicide Short Intervention Program, ASIP, involves numerous elements including safety planning and semi-standardized letters over a span of two years, and results from a randomized control trial suggest that ASIP effectively reduced the risk of suicide reattempts by 80% and led to significantly less time spent in hospital follow-ups. So I know I just shared a ton of research, 
but I wanted to share all of that because as you were listening, hopefully you heard that a lot of those interventions, actually, I think pretty much all of them weren't talking about like psychotherapy, psychopharmacological follow-up, which is extremely important. And anybody that presents to the ED for suicidal ideation, behavior attempts, and or spends time in acute psychiatric facility does needs those things as well. But it also shows how implementing, you know, just phone call follow-ups, letters, texts, social support follow-ups can be so beneficial in reducing suicide risk. Um, we often think of suicide risk intervention and prevention as things that people in the mental health field do. And yes, we do do that. But I promise you that non-mental health professionals can also make a huge impact on their loved ones, people they know that are suicidal. Um, I didn't originally plan on sharing this, but it just came to the top of my mind because I did a post on it the other day. But when we think about individuals that present to the ED or make a suicide attempt, we do know from research that a previous suicide attempt is one of the strongest, if not the strongest predictor of a future suicide attempt. However, research shows that about 70% of individuals who attempt suicide never go on to make another suicide attempt. And the reason I thought about that is just, I would be interested to know if like that is based on, you know, the follow-up they get. Uh, obviously it's probably based on a number of factors, risk factors, current situation, things like that. But if we could, if we already know it's that high, if we could even make that number higher by doing things like following up with a phone call, sending a letter, um, getting social supports in place, in addition to psychotherapy and psychopharmacology, I think that would be pretty amazing. So I think that is all I'm going to cover today. Um, I recognized I only scratched the surface and there's so much more to talk about. However, I hope this was a good starting point for understanding intervention at various levels for suicidal behavior. If there are specifics you would like me to cover more, talk about more, please let me know. Also check out my Instagram and TikTok for more content about suicide. So on TikTok, I have a playlist of all my videos on suicide. On Instagram, the videos are all and static posts are all on my page, but I also due to the suggestion of somebody that follows me, have a highlight where I have answered questions about suicide. I also wanted to thank you all who have taken time to rate and review the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. If you haven't yet and are willing to do so, head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and give it a rating. It only takes a few seconds and really helps the podcast grow. But that is all for this week, and I will see you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. 
Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.